You're listening to Speechless, the new podcast from storytelling experts Marion Pasha and Simon Bucknell. Hit follow now to learn how to tell stories that change the world. If you'd asked me 10 years ago to tell you about my career, my education, kind of what I'd done in my life up until that point, you would have heard a story that focused very much on other people. That I had been in the right place at the right time, that other people had taken a chance on me, maybe I had been lucky, that you would have heard a story that was very much not about me and more about the people, institutions, or companies where I had somehow conned my way in to being there. From getting into a top university in Canada and feeling like I better quickly say yes in case they realize they've made the mistake of letting me in to genuinely feeling like my first job after university was because they just wanted someone less talented than the other people on the team for this one time, right? It didn't even occur to me how ridiculous that sounds as it does to me right now. But I really felt that way. It's why coming across the idea of imposter syndrome felt like a light bulb moment. All of a sudden, all of these things that I had never really seen, but that were absolutely there tripping me up, were illuminated by the idea of imposter syndrome. Now, if you don't know what imposter syndrome is, it's a feeling that somehow you have fooled everyone into around you into thinking that you know stuff, that you have some kind of expertise, but actually you're a fraud. Now... There's loads of research done on imposter syndrome and I started to read more and more about it and I started to realize that this might be the answer. Imposter syndrome might be the thing that was holding me back, making me feel like my accomplishments weren't my own, like that I was going to be found out at any moment. Imposter syndrome felt so much like the answer that about 10 years ago when I was asked to give a TEDx talk, I wanted to give a talk on imposter syndrome. And I did. And it was a great talk. And at the end of that talk, I boldly declared, I'm going to write a book on this. Tell me your stories. And so for the next few years, that's what I did. I gathered stories. I talked to people I knew and that I didn't. People sent me their stories online. I talked to friends. And patterns started to emerge. I tried desperately to try and fit these patterns and these ideas into different structures, try to understand why some people feel this way and some people don't, why some people act on it and some people don't. I read as much as I could that was out there. And I also spoke about imposter syndrome a lot. And people would come up to me all the time saying, I feel just like this. So I really felt like I had hit on something until it started to dawn on me and I don't know quite when this happened. You know, sometimes you something sneaks up on you, like a realization, and it feels like it's overnight, but actually it's probably been brewing for quite a long time. But one day I sat down to think, all right, I'm writing this book now. And I realized I had nothing to say about imposter syndrome because I realized that it wasn't real. Now, how could that be? Because if all of these people had told me that it felt like it spoke to them and I had felt so much like it gave me answers and all of these academic research had been done on it, how could I have come to the conclusion that imposter syndrome wasn't real? What I figured out was that when people were telling me that they were stepping into boardrooms and feeling like they didn't belong, when they were in the workplace and they were feeling like people thought they were maybe a fraud or they were going to get found out, um, all of those 
emotions that people were feeling on the inside that they had been made to think because of things like imposter syndrome were all in their head were actually completely true. Now, I'm not saying that people were not good at their jobs or that they were frauds or they weren't actually talented. What I'm saying is that if you are a woman of color walking in to an all-male, all-white boardroom, yeah, some of those people are going to be thinking, this person doesn't belong here. If you exist in the world in some kind of marginalized way, whether that's because of how much education you've had, how much money you've made, uh, your whether you have a disability, your sexuality, your gender, your race, the fact that you're a refugee, you have an accent, whatever it might be that takes you to feel other. When you walk into various spaces, whether we want to admit it or not, society is telling us that we shouldn't be there. And so to make people feel like this is something that's going on in their head is so insidious. To make people feel that this is something that they need to fix internally doesn't, so all of a sudden didn't make sense to me anymore. Because the truth is, is that if you walk into a room and think everyone here might think I'm an imposter, they probably do. The answer though, isn't to fix something in your head or to see the room differently. The answer is to ask yourself, is that going to stop me from doing what I want to do? Because the only thing in your control is what you do with that information. So whether you feel like an imposter or not, whether people are really thinking that or not, whatever the feelings you have, they're only feelings. What you do with them and how you let it influence your behavior, that's the really important thing. So now when you ask me, about my career, you'll hear a lot more about me. And when you hear about other people, it won't be because I feel like they took a chance on someone without skill. You'll hear me talking about people who held me up, even when I didn't always feel like I could do it. Wow, wow, wow. So uh, that's, there's a lot to take in there. <laughs> so immediately what strikes me about this is of course that this is not a singular anecdote this is a more overarching narrative which of course is is a different form of story people sometimes think oh the only way to tell a story is it has to be a literal anecdote and of course there's important moments there in the story mm -hmm. that you've told but it's it spans a, a number of years it's it spans a whole segment of your life yeah and that's uh, yeah and therefore it's on a it's on a grand scale, in a way, as a as a listener, and and I'm I'm struck also. The second thing that really strikes me about that is that there are real twists and turns in the journey that you go through, which of course is, also, is always engaging to a to a listener. Of course, there needs to be some kind of curiosity, some kind of ah, some moments of well, I say crisis, not as in problem, but crisis as in a point at which things change. There's a moment of realization. There's a shift in understanding or perception. So here's my first question, which is. What would you say is one of the most important turning points, if that's the right phrase, uh, in in that narrative? Yes, I think this is very true. And uh, you know, it's interesting you highlight that because it felt like that experiencing it. It felt like being pushed in it. Like in when I think back on how I felt in those moments, mm. I felt like I was being turned around a corner. Like like I felt like I was going in one direction and then all of a sudden life pulled me in another direction so I really wanted to recreate that feeling mm. there's really two and they're very different mm -hmm. 
one is like this real light bulb, this instant moment of un- like hearing about imposter syndrome and everything all of a sudden feeling like it made sense. Yes. And the second feeling is more of like this creeping feeling. The second turning point is this more creeping, developing feeling where I'm like, everyone is saying yes, 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 but something isn't adding up here, right? Something isn't making sense. Um, maybe I've got it wrong all this whole time. And if I understood it right, it, the, the realization that the something that's not adding up is n- is about more than just your own sense of self-esteem, self-worth. Yes, exactly. I think we have this, we do this, I mean, with imposter syndrome, the thing I realized is we um, always think every, all the answers are located inside us and mm. all the fault is located inside us. Yes. When actually, sometimes what you're doing is picking up on signals from the wider society that are completely there. And yet we make people feel like, oh, it's just all in your head. And maybe it's not all in their head. And that is a thing that I realized. And that's why it felt so all like, like, although it was creeping, all of a sudden felt so problematic because I felt like what I was doing was reinforcing the same kind of really problematic way that the world makes us think about ourselves, which is that, oh, you feel like you don't belong. You need to feel better about yourself. You need to be more confident. You, <laughs> yeah. Or maybe you don't Sort yourself like, esteem yeah, out love, eh? <laughs> right? And, and like, what are all the things I can do? Well, maybe you're swimming. What is that? It's a great analogy about it. Like, a fish is in water. Like, you can't be like, oh, mm. if you're wet, mm. what have you done to be wet? It's like, it's in water. Yeah. You're not, yeah. yeah, you can't pull a towel out, dry yourself off whilst you're in the water. Exactly. At least, at least I, I've tried yeah. that. It's very it's difficult. It's very bad, it's very yeah. Difficult. Um, so I think that was it. And so for me, I wanted to capture those two turning points huh. um, that were really important to me that felt as significant in my own journey of it. Yeah. So so the risk of getting all Stephen Covey on, on, on you right now is. with that, right, it says yeah, seven habits of highly effective okay. people. Yeah. So he, he speaks about the idea of the circle of control and the circle of influence yes. and needing to be clear on what, what's in each of those two domains. Oh, yeah. and, and and this is this is this of course what happens with storytelling when you're engaged in a story or in this case a, a, a narrative is that we as a listener we, we can't help but relate to that in our own way of course yeah. whether we are actually in the moment in the situation with this with the speaker the storyteller and or observing it nevertheless we, we process it of course through our own lens and so something that i that came into my mind as you were talking it through and actually telling that relating the story earlier and and again it's in my mind now is there's something here interesting about that the distinction that if i've understood it right that your early stages of understanding were everything here that's relevant is in my circle of is and should be in my circle mm. of control, which is all wrapped up with my self-esteem. Yeah. And and actually that there is there's way more that is actually outside of your circle of control, which is yeah. other people's perception of you mentioning women of colour in certain situations. Yeah. And whether you like it or not, there's gonna be certain views which you subconsciously or maybe sometimes consciously pick up on. Yeah. But which influence then of course how you might feel. Oh yeah, absolutely. That's exactly it. I mean in psychology it's called like locus of control, internal, mm-hmm, external. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, if you have too much of an internal focus, you feel like everything is your fault. If you have too much of an external, you take no responsibility for anything. And the idea is you have to have balance. Yeah. And I think it's important to identify that. And I think, you know, just to give you an example, right, of what I mean here, and this is sometimes if I speak, if I tell the, if I tell the story longer, I'm, I will sometimes bring in some details of like this. In one of my first jobs, I went to my boss and said, I feel like I'm experiencing racism from these senior members of staff. And that person turned around to me and said, oh, Mariam, you're always, you're always looking for it. You've just been taught to look for racism and you just see it everywhere, even when it doesn't exist. Now, 
nowadays you think like i'm sure people are thinking what but like you know 15 years ago in this job that was like a very fine thing for someone to say to me mm. and if you think about experiences like that that is not unusual for lots of people listening you know mm. of course you feel like an imposter like of course you're going to feel like a fraud in circumstances where that's the soup that mm. you're swimming in mm. you know I, i think sometimes about the students that i'm teaching in oxford They will tell me about some of the stuff they hear at the university. They'll hear things from classmates around how colonialism was a good idea or how slavery wasn't that bad. And, you know, these are skull scholars coming over from India, from Africa, from all around the world. That is not in their head that they feel like, oh, maybe I don't belong in this kind of institution. It's that the history of it, the, the conversations they're having with classmates you know, it's coming to the surface. Of course, not everyone, but enough that it influences their opinion, their their experience. Mm. The question then is, what do you do about it? Do you mm. agree? Do you say, yeah, you're right, actually. I am an imposter. I am a fraud. I don't shouldn't be here. It's my fault. I couldn't just get it together. I better leave. And some people listen to that voice and they just mm. diminish themselves and diminish themselves. So that is one choice that That's people one can choice. make. Right? Yeah. And yeah. I think that the more you make it feel like it's inside the person, the more likely they are to feel like they have to battle themselves yes. when actually this is all of our problem to fix, not that one person's. Whereas your realization is that there's a second choice, second path, Yeah. which, which how is, would you characterize that? That's a- it, For me, it's to say it doesn't matter whether this is real or not. I choose to do something different. Like I choose not to listen to this yeah. feeling, yeah. you know, because in, You know, you you can be in a context and it can be very subconscious. Like, you know, like when you think about systemic problems, right? Like systemic problems are the way that they're phrased is that it's not like someone's coming up to you every day and saying something homophobic, racist, sexist, ageist, classist. That's not what systemic problems are. It's embedded in the systems and the places that we exist. So it's not like you can just avoid them. They're, they're there. So the question is, what do you do now, mm. right? Mm. Like, do you say, okay, well, this this may or may not be real, but I have different choices that I can make. Mm. Or do you say, actually, yeah, I, I, these voices are real. These thoughts are real. They're based in fact. Mm. I think it's that choice. And I think if you choose to say, it doesn't matter that I feel this way. This isn't the truth. Mm. This is just a set of feelings. <laughs> and they only have so much power as I choose to give them. Yes then you have other decisions you can make. Same is true of managing symptoms of nerves, of course, Absolutely. which is a separate episode, isn't yeah. it? I'm It's experiencing exactly that. this, this, and this, and you've got a choice of how you interpret it. Yeah. Either you say, oh, and that's a problem, and therefore, mm, or yeah. I'm experiencing this, this, and this, which I can remember experiencing backstage yeah. at Royal Festival Hall for TEDx London yeah, yeah. those years ago. And the hell are they going to go anyway? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> nerves is a great, a great analogy. So, you know, one of my favorite things when I'm working with speakers who are nervous is to say, how do you, why are you nervous? You're nervous because you care. Mm. So that's what you just need to say to yourself. I'm not, don't be nervous, stop being nervous, what's wrong with you, why can't you get it together, blah, 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 mm. which is often mm. what I feel when I say you're beating yourself internally like there's something wrong with you. And just accept, I'm nervous because I care and I'm still going to do this thing. Yeah. And I think that that reframing of it is the same kind of reframing we're talking about yes. here. As a line that you, you said in the, in the narrative, which I wrote down here, is that going to stop me? Yeah. was the voice in your yeah. head, which of course also is dialogue, isn't it? I mean, that, that was the voice in your head thinking, right, duh, 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 duh. is that going to stop me? Which is a much better question than, is is this real? Am I right to be feeling like this? Yeah. Is it them or is it me? Is yeah. it both? Is it, duh, 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 duh. you're saying, well, <laughs> all of that stuff actually is not relevant. What's relevant is, 
is that going to stop me to do whatever I'm going to do? Yeah. And I, there's something very, very empowering about that because, of course, for a listener, for me, for, for, for people listening to this on the podcast, of course, there's a, yeah, thinking about my world, my circumstances, my situation where I'm feeling this, this, and this, is that going to stop me? Yeah. And of course, yeah, you just switch that pronoun, of course. Is that going to stop me? Is that going to stop you? It's yeah. the kind of thing that stands out. It's lovely when that happens, I think, for in any kind of story or, or, or narrative where there is a voice, there is a moment, there is a phrase which which leaps out and which is the heart of the essence of the center of them <laughs> and i think i think <laughs> i mean what the story's about maybe it's good for listeners to know like this is not a story i've told very often mm. so this is one that's very much in development for me and so when i just think about that kind of feedback i think i would then go in and edit it and think my last line should be is that going to stop me is that going to stop you mm. that wouldn't you know and i think that's one of the great things about actually talking to people about this and like hearing it yeah. um for me, actually, one of the you mentioned this earlier about this being like a sweet, like instead of it being at one moment in time, it's kind of like 10, 20 years was like deciding those moments. And I think, um, you know, picking where I want to jump, like where do I want to like actually say something over this period of time yes. was part of the work for me was to pick these key moments. Yes, yes. I'm reminded of experience working with somebody that, again, you and I know. In fact, it was, I think, the very first time that we collaborated back in 2009. Oh. We were in Stockport, I seem to mm. remember. And at the time, you were running a program for social entrepreneurs, each and every one of whom was, is a refugee mm -hmm. here in the UK. Yeah. And I can still remember... Uh, a lady uh, originally, I think, from Zimbabwe, I think, mm. living here. And I forget the exact words, but the essence of it was her saying, yeah, I've got this idea for a project, but I I've got a challenge, which is every time I walk into council offices or meeting with business leaders or potential donors or supporters or whatever. And I remember her exact words of saying, I know that some of them are thinking or feeling, isn't it nice, little black girl trying to do her bit for the community yeah. and it pisses me off. Yeah, I remember <laughs> that distinctly. Yeah, she put it much more politely and more, yeah. <laughs> more sophisticated way than me but it, than I did just then. But And it was fascinating to, as she talked it through, that of course for her, in the end, what she was about was, the key was for her to find a way to to focus on what's most important, which is maybe to acknowledge and say, look, thank you so much for agreeing to see me today. I really appreciate it. Because let's face it, there'd be some people that would see someone like me and think, isn't it nice little black girl trying to do her bit for the community? But that's not why I'm here. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, yeah. I don't want your pity. I don't want your da -da -da -da. calling it out in a yeah. way and saying, I'm here because I believe I can make a difference to your community by doing this, this and this. And if you're with me, then great. And if not, then that's fine. And actually focusing on this is not going to stop me. This is what I'm really about. And it, and you could see that in her eyes. That's what the real purpose really? was. And of course, when you start to reframe the language of that in something like a pitch as she was doing, yeah. then the kind of impact you can achieve in that first minute or two goes through the roof as a result. But it, it was an immediate power that struck yeah. me then, given what you've been saying. I mean, that idea of voicing something and getting it out of the way mm. in the beginning is something that I saw you do many, many years ago and has still stuck with me is is i think it's a it's a skill to be able to read the room and it, you, know, you want to do it right mm. but the idea of saying i remember you were talking about it in the context of working in schools where you might look very different than the people in the school yeah and yeah. just say, what was the phrase you have this great phrase like you might be wondering what uh, yeah, well, Harry Potter's dad's doing in your classroom. Yeah. yeah. But be honest, if, if you don't want to be here, just put your hand up. That was a line I actually st uh, stole from from, from uh, one of the other uh, trainers in the program who said, I always ask them to just put their hands up if they don't want to be here. I thought, oh, that's brilliant. Yeah. I love that idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I think yeah. I still yeah. think you just that's, it. Put it that's absolutely, that's absolutely great. And I think there's a power sometimes to saying, you know, to just speaking what's, what's 
maybe in people's minds, what you may be feeling, you know. I do think a lot of times people do think that public speaking is a lot of like cloak and dagger, <laughs> you know, like you can't tell people what your core message is. You can't say this is, <laughs> you know, what I want you to take away. Blah, blah, blah. You can absolutely say those things. And you can also say, you might be wondering what someone like me is doing here. Well, let me tell you. Well, you might be, you know, I might be the 10th person you heard from today and, you know, you're getting a bit tired, but there's something, you know, whatever it might be, you can, you can voice that. You have to do your work though and make sure you're not voicing something that isn't true. Because, yeah, yeah. yeah, you can't p- tell people, oh, you might be thinking, you might all be sitting here super bored and unengaged and, and people are like, no, I'm paying attention, but yeah. thanks so much. <laughs> Brené Brown does a fabulous job of that in her fable taught The Power of Vulnerability. Mm. It's about two thirds of the way in where she makes a comment about people's lives and the audience laughs and she says, where's the effect of, now, I know that laugh, that was like, <laughs> don't forget, I hack into your lives for a living and she like catches the audience yeah, on that. No, it's wonderful. It's, it's so transparent transparent it's just a it gets a very very powerful connection with uh with an audience i think yeah and i think you know for people who are building uh, a story like this you know because i can imagine that if you're working on something that is for social impact or change or purpose whether that's like change within a company or because you have a project or whatever it might be you're going to be asked sometimes to tell these stories that span like a long period of time mm-hmm. um and I think what's really important is to give it that kind of structure. So for me, I use this like six sentence structure. I use the Pixar pitch. You will have heard us talk about this in other episodes. Mm. It helps me do a couple of things. It helps me decide like what the key turning points are. So like, what is that like aha moment? It helps me decide like, if that's my aha moment, then when do I start? It helps me decide where I want to end up and it also helps me sort through a lot of different things to figure out like what are the one or two most important points of information Mm -hmm. so I think actually when you do have a story you want to tell that is just could be like an hour (laughs) um, you can use these kinds of structures to help help you do that narrowing down and then you can like expand and contract as you need to yes yes I love the idea that you view that as a story that is in in development, I think you said. Or your yeah, story. I do. It's, I feel it's, like... It's not fully honed in your mind yet. Yes, absolutely. I feel so, like I haven't told it enough. Yeah, That's probably yeah. why. Is, is I've probably thought that story or thought that narrative arc yes. a lot. And I've told bits of it before. Yes. You know, um, in fact, I think the opening of it is very similar to what I use in the TEDx talk about imposter syndrome. But... For me, I haven't told it in that format and I haven't got enough feedback on it. How Remind us of how you open it. How do you decide where to start with the story? Because this is one of the real catches, yeah. I think, with storytelling that people often face is what language do I use to get into the story in the first place and yeah. avoid just a rational summary of events? So, so I actually start with the middle... <laughs> So I I start with the turning point and Uh then I work back logically and I think, okay, if that's the turning point, what do they need to know for that turning point to make sense? And then what's the beginning of that? So I first do that kind of middle to beginning little exercise in my head. And then for me, I try to cut out any of the preamble stuff. Like, let me tell you, or I'm here today too, or I want to, you know, any of that kind yeah. of, you know how they tell I you. I tell you a story. I would tell you a story. He's like email writing. <laughs> I had to work very hard to start writing in my emails. I'm writing to you today to tell you. It's like, just tell them. Yeah. <laughs> What's in the email? <laughs> yes. But it's the same thing. And so for me, I wanted to start by this recurrence. Like, that's what I thought for myself is what is this? Before I heard, so I asked myself this question. Before you heard about imposter syndrome, how would you characterize the way that you spoke about yourself and thought about yourself and thought about your achievements? Yes. 
and it really then became evident to me that the the underlying thing of that was that I would it was always attributable to something outside of myself, other people, luck, except being in the right place at the right time. It was never about my skills and talent and hard work. Mm. And so I felt like that was something that I realized when I found out about imposter syndrome. So that was when I had that light bulb moment. And so I felt like it was really important to to have that as the context in the lead up. So that was for me working back from there. Because I, I agree, I think, you know, if you sit down and you try to tell a story and you just start from the beginning, it's very hard. Yes, I yes. actually think it's easier. That's why structures help me, but also it's easier to kind of think, is there a key turning point or is there a place I want to end up or is there some kind of anchor within the yeah. story yeah. and then work outwardly from that. Yes. So I love that. So the, I mean, sometimes see this in filmmaking, of course, where we go straight to an incident or yes, a, a moment exactly. and then there will be a, there'll then the, the, the context, you know, six months earlier, oh, yeah, it really is, comes in later. So, so in order to open a story, you're saying you don't have to start literally at the chronological beginning, but no. you do need to have a start point of some kind yes. and to paint that picture or show, show the listener something. Exactly. Um, and yeah, depending on the kind of story you're telling, I guess, that that will be painting a picture of a situation or a point in time. And time yeah. phrases can be great, can't they? We're telling a story. It may, may they not be once upon a time. It could be six months ago. I remember earlier in my career or yeah. know, something that actually anchors the, the story in a particular time and therefore place. I always ask myself, especially the first 30 seconds, right? What does the audience need to be thinking for everything else to make sense? Mm-hmm. Like whatever they've come to, Whatever, like, oh, I have to pick up my kids from school. Oh, I got this really annoying email. Oh, I'm really excited about my holiday next week or whatever it might be. Whatever they're coming to when you start speaking, how do you very quickly get them in the mindset that you need to get them in? That and and getting them interested or curiosity, but it's you're battling both those things. First, focusing their mind and second, getting them to keep listening. Yes, yes. And you said something earlier about, about your taking your mind back to how it felt and what it was like. Yeah. Which, uh, which I think is a fascinating area there about what it feels like emotionally, mentally to go back to some of these experiences, which I think is probably a whole other topic when mm. it comes to difficult storytelling because yeah. there's a difference between reliving and, if you like, revisiting. You've been listening to Speechless, the podcast from storytelling experts Marion Pasha and Simon Bucknell. Hit follow now to keep learning how to tell stories that change the world. And if you enjoyed it, please leave us a rating and review. Until next time, speak less, say more.